Good morning. Welcome to Southfield. We're so glad to have you here with us this morning. On your way in, you should have received a folder. On that folder are all kinds of announcements and different information about who we are at Southfield. A lot of um, different ways for you to keep up with who we are as a church. Now, on the inside of that folder is a card, and we encourage everybody to fill that out every week with as much information as you are comfortable with sharing, because that's our way of keeping up with you. Uh, whether it's a prayer request or an update in information or whatever it is, we want to know what's going on with you so we can be there with you in prayer and in life. Uh, so again, if you are a first-timer, make sure to fill that out. If you're a hundredth-timer, be sure to fill it out. Another reminder that if you have a home phone number that might be in our system that you've recently removed, or maybe you removed it two years ago and just haven't updated it, please let us know uh, so that we aren't calling dead numbers. Before we get started, we have a question for you this morning. Uh, And it has to do with lines or mottos or philosophies that have driven your life. What is the one line that you can remember from a parent, a coach, a teacher, whoever it may be, that has changed your philosophy on life? I've had several. My now state champion cross-country coach, Kevin Gummerson, always talked about uh, intestinal fortitude. That's a hard word to say. Intestinal fortitude. You need to be tough in your gut. My dad, even to this day, whether I'm leaving the house, going to bed, whatever it is, he always ends with be good. My mom, on the other hand, while she did have one that she reminded me of after first service, great people do hard things. I remember this other one more and it was big boys don't cry. (laughs) Big boys don't cry when they play t-ball. Big boys don't cry when they go to kindergarten because your eye patch will fall off. Big boys don't cry in baseball. Big boys don't cry when you misspell failure in the second grade spelling bee. Big boys don't cry in junior high. Big boys don't cry in high school. And most recently, it was yesterday, big boys don't cry. It takes a lot of people 26 years how to, lo- how to learn to tie your shoes. All right? So... <laughs> Whatever it is, whatever that one line is, and you know, so that's, that's really been driven into me. I don't cry very often. Uh, it's really got to be like a, you know, a lifetime movie or something that draws it out of me. For any of you who know Shelly, that clearly was not a motto uh, that got through to her at all. So she got a free pass on the crying thing, but big boys don't cry. What's yours? Uh, we're going to spend the next minute, if you would, uh, turn and share with somebody else. What's that one thing, that line from a teacher or a coach or a parent? Um, or maybe it's something that you are instilling in your, in your kids or grandkids or students, whatever it is. Uh, what's that one thing um, that has changed the way you live or you're trying to change the way somebody else lives? Go ahead. Well, it sounds like you've been doing some pretty good sharing. Anybody want to call one or two of them out? What do you got? Oh, what happened there? Say it again. It is what it is. That's a good one. What do you got? Go ahead. You be the better man. That's good. That's good. What do you got? Perfection is never required. Very good. Very good. Any others? You get what you paid for. This is a true statement. Say it again. Doing the right thing is never easy. Uh, Riley's sitting over here. Her, her mom used to say, you can do it. You can do it. All right, that's a good one. Uh, I kind of laughed as I was thinking this through. I mean, football coach has like a million of these, right? I mean, he, he tweets these things constantly. So just beforehand, he shared one of them with me. 
as they're breaking the huddle, the, the simple line, don't do stupid. <laughs> there you go. Don't do stupid. Uh, you know, very, very important. So we got these lines. These lines have been drilled in our head. And uh, some of you have heard this one. Don't be a quitter. Don't be a quitter. Come on, persevere. Never give up. Never surrender. Stick with it. Uh, if, if that happens to be your line, uh, the title of this series may offend your sensibilities. It's entitled, I Quit. There are some things in life that we need to quit. We need to give them up, not just for Lent. We need to give them up for life. We need to give them up for the rest of our lives. And we need to give them up if we want to experience true rest in this life. The kind of rest that Jesus promised. Abundant life, full life, rich life. Last week we began the series by talking about I Quit Hiding. If you missed it, catch the podcast. If you were here, go ahead and catch it anyway. Because I'll tell you what, we are hiders by nature, by sinful nature. Our natural tendency is to sew up that fig leaf smock to cover up and to head to the bushes in order to hide from the truth and to hide from God. Life is only lived at its fullest when we come out of hiding, when we give it up, when we quit hiding. Well, let's move to the next one. The next one is I quit hating. Few forces in this world are more destructive than hate. Hate has sparked wars. It's led to genocide. It's held entire races of people captive by slavery. It's caused people to shoot up malls, to shoot up schools, and to shoot up military bases. And most sadly, it's caused Christians at times to hack anything but like Christ. Hate is so destructive. And what we tend to miss is that the hate we harbor within ourselves is more destructive than the outward hate that we show to others. Hate held too long, too deeply, too closely burns us. It ruins our lives. It sabotages our souls. Hate destroys life. It is not life-giving at all. The thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy. That's what hate does. Now, we could go in so many directions as we talk about giving up hate. We're going to go here. We're going to go to Matthew 22. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up or you can watch with us on the screen. It's funny. You, you think that the gotcha game began with uh, modern media and the 24-hour news cycle. It's as old as sin itself. It's been there for a long, long time. The Pharisees and Sadducees are talking to Jesus, and Jesus has just given the Sadducees a smackdown. And so now it's the Pharisees' turn. They come up with a question, a question that they're sure is going to trap Jesus. The question is, teacher, which is the most important commandment in all of the law of Moses? I, just think about it. If only these people understood who they were talking to. Think about it. I mean, imagine their first moment in eternity when they realize how poorly, how contemptuously, how hatefully they treated the Son of God while he was here on earth. It's a great question, even if the motive is suspect at best. The Bible is full of commandments, right? There are commandments on so many pages. We have the Big Ten found in Exodus and repeated in, in Deuteronomy. Uh, then we have this part that it says, the law of Moses. The law of Moses is not just a reference to the Ten Commandments. It's actually all the law found in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The count is that there are 613 commands in the law of Moses, including everything from not murdering a human being to what to do if you discover mold in the lining of your tent. 
613 laws. Now, a sincere peer person might ask, of the 613, which are the biggies? Because I don't know about you. I mean, I'm the kind of guy, when Kim says, go to Jewel and get this, this, and this, I come home with 49 things, and I miss the three that were on the list. It's so easy for me when the list is too long to get muddled and to miss things that are important. So if there are 613 laws, I'd sure like to know what are the handful that are really, really, really important. Is that mold thing as important as murdering somebody? Which one is really important? Now think about this for a moment. Before we go any further, how is Jesus going to respond? And what you got to do is suspend, suspend your knowledge right now. Act as if you've never heard this passage before. How will Jesus respond? Maybe you should ask yourself, how would you respond? What would you say? Which is the most important law of Moses? You see, I'm an oldest and I'm kind of rule keeper. So I'd say they're all important. Every last one of them. You can't, you, I mean, if it's the right thing to do, it's the right thing to do. There can't be one that's more righter than the other. They're all right. They're all important. And this is one of the many great reasons I am not Jesus. And you are fortunate. His answer is so wise. It's so intelligent. Here's what he says. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. Jesus doesn't really say that one is more important than the other. He says all 613 hinge on these two. Everything flows from loving God wholeheartedly and loving other people at a level at which we love ourselves. Now look at this connection, okay? So if I love my neighbor, I'll take care of the mold problem in my tent. Because I don't want them to ultimately have a mold problem if I have a mold problem. So if I'm loving someone else, I'll take care of these little details in life. True love looks up. It looks behind. It looks before. It looks around. And it looks in. It looks up to God. It looks around to those next to me. It looks at those who came before me and those who come behind me. And it looks in. It looks in at me. Jesus set a a beautifully unique standard for a Christ follower. The world embraces power. The world embraces bluster and bragging. It embraces the person with the heaviest heel and the sharpest toe on his boot. The world embraces meanness and maliciousness. It caresses the contemptuous and it coddles the cold-hearted. You know what Matthew 22 tells us? We're called to be different. We're called to embrace a different kingdom standard. Too many of us fall for the world standard of power. Hate is not power. Hate is not power. Jesus says love is the ultimate power. What do you think Jesus is saying here? What, what, what is he trying to express to us? You know, hate may get the job done, but it doesn't accomplish the will of God. And that's why we're here. We're here to accomplish the will of God. So it's time to quit hating. We're called to love. We're called to love God. We're called to love others. And we're called to love ourselves. So let's start with that last one. It's time to quit hating me. And by me, I mean you, not me. It's time to quit hating ourselves. The passage tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now some in in more recent years have made a point with a degree of legitimacy that we cannot love others if we do not love ourselves. 
I got to admit that line scares me a little bit. It scares me because our society is so narcissistic. We tend to mistake narcissism for love. Do you remember Narcissus? He's, he's this character in Greek mythology who loved himself and loved his looks so much that he saw his reflection in a mirror and stared and stared and stared until he ultimately died. Sadly, we have no shortage of sick self-love in our times. So many sinful actions have been based on a warped romance with self Looking out for mine is not the kind of love the Bible is espousing. Self-promotion is the farthest thing from the way of Christ. God never commends getting mine at the expense of others. True love, the way of true love, is always about self-denial, self-surrender, and self-abandonment. Can you start to see why this message about loving self is so tricky? The real question is, how do I love me biblically? How do I love me the way the Bible says I should? Well, it's not so much me loving me as me seeing, as me, seeing me through the loving eyes with which God sees me. I'm going to say it again. There are way too many me's in that sentence, okay? It's not so much about me loving me as me seeing me through the loving eyes with which God sees me. So it's not simple uh, narcissistic love. But it's looking and asking, how does God see me? And can I embrace that view that he has of me? Look at Ephesians 2.10. The Bible says we are his masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. I could give you so many verses today on the way God looks at us, but we're just going to settle in on this one. How does God see you? First, you are pure artistry. Pure artistry. You are a masterpiece. You are a work of art. He worked the clay, and he fashioned it into something, someone absolutely beautiful. He fashioned it into you, and then he takes that beautiful trophy, and he puts it on in his mantle, and he absolutely admires it. He admires you. You are his masterpiece, his artistry, his work of art. The second thing this passage says is you are renewed in Christ. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. Last week we focused on shame and how guilt and regret can lead to a sense of shame in life. And before you know it, the way we're living, our identity becomes the things we've done wrong. And all we can do is focus on what we've done wrong. But the Bible tells us that the way God views us is a person who is renewed in Christ. He doesn't keep looking at the past and saying, that's who you are. He looks at us through the lens of who Jesus is. Finally, he says, you are part of his plan and you are part of his purpose. How do we see ourselves? What's the view we have of ourselves? Well, we don't see ourselves as art. We see ourselves as garbage. Not renewed, but ruined. Not a plan and purposeful, but a mistake and a mess. It's time to quit the self-loathing. And along with self-loathing, it's time to stop the self-talk that reinforces the messages of self-loathing. Let me address just one, one, one kind of self-talk that we use when we loathe ourselves. We live in a performance-based society. Uh, maybe this message has been drilled into you. This is the one. Be number one. Be number one. Second place is first loser. 
You want to be number one in everything. If you buy that line, if you buy that lie, you will come to hate you. Here's the thing. Nobody, no person can be best at everything. You might be best at one or two things, but nobody can be best at everything. And here's the sad fact. Many of us are best at nothing. In fact, all we're best at is being second or 50th or 100th or something else. So if you're going to buy into this this self-talk that I have to be number one or I'm worthless, you're going to have a huge problem. It's going to lead to an actual self-hatred. If I choose to live this lie in time, self-loathing will become a way of life. In reality, this lie is not the way of life, but a deadly pathway. God cares more about you as a being than he does about what you're doing. He cares more about your character than about what you're accomplishing. Hating oneself is so deadly. More than one person has literally chosen to end their life, either quickly by way of a weapon or slowly by substance or other activities through constant self-loathing and self-hatred. For you today, the message may be simple. I quit hating me. I'm choosing to start to see myself the way God sees me instead of the way that I have chosen to see me for so many years. Well, let's now move on to others and loving others. When we fail to love ourselves, it is based on the unhealthy pattern of self-loathing. When we fail to love others, the key word is contempt. It's contempt. Here's the dictionary definition of the word. Contempt is the feeling that a person is beneath consideration, is worthless, and is deserving of scorn. I really appreciate the work of John Gottman. He's a professor in psychology who has done great work on marriage and relationships. Gottman claims to be able to predict with a couple within a 90% accuracy whether or not they're going to get divorced based on what he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, He says, even the most successful relationships have conflict. All relationships have tension. If you don't have tension, uh, you're probably side by side in caskets. All relationships have a degree of conflict and tension. Research has shown that it is not the appearance of conflict that's a problem, but rather how it is managed. That's what predicts uh, the success or the failure of a relationship. And so it is important for us to keep our eyes out for these horsemen when they arise in our conflict discussions and to deal with them quickly. To, to not do so is to risk serious problems in our future relationships. So what are the four horsemen? The first one is criticism. Now, we all have complaints. It's not a perfect world, right? And, and if you pretend not to have complaints, you're lying. It's okay to complain. The problem is a complaint focuses on a specific behavior, but a criticism starts to attack the character of a person. So now we move it from what the person's doing to what an idiot they are because of what they're doing. You see how all of a sudden it shifted? It's not a complaint anymore. Now it's becoming a criticism. The second horseman he raises is defensiveness. Defensiveness is defined as self-protection in the form of self-righteous indignation or innocent victimhood in an attempt to ward off perceived attacks. Many people become defensive when they are criticized, but the problem is that being defensive never helps to solve the problem at hand. 
Defensiveness is really a way of blaming your partner, blaming someone else. You're saying, in effect, I don't have the problem. You have the problem. As a result, the problem is not resolved, and the conflict just escalates further, just keeps going up. The third he lists is stonewalling. Stonewalling occurs when a listener withdraws from the interaction. So, you know, you you can feel the conflict rising, and, and you're with someone who every time conflict rises, they check out. They leave the room, they leave the discussion, they leave the argument. They're not going to sit there and deal with this. They're going to check out. If stonewalling's going on, no conflicts can ever be resolved. The last one, and the harshest one, is contempt. Statements that come from a relative position of superiority are statements of contempt. Now, I, I need you to do something. If you're married and if you're here, eyes on me, Okay. No looking at the person next to you. No twitching. You're going to be very still right now. You're not going to give away anything. All right? Here we go. Some examples of displays of contempt include when a person uses sarcasm, cynicism, name-calling, eye-rolling, sneering, mockery, and hostile humor. Contempt is the greatest predictor of divorce, and it must be eliminated While Gottman uses these four predictors for divorce, it is possible to expand them really to every relationship, especially that last one, contempt. Think this through. How can I love someone and hold them in contempt at the same time? The two are not humanly possible. We could spend the next several hours highlighting examples from modern culture of this destructive, of the destructive nature of contempt. I just want to turn to politics for a minute and not the presidential race. I just don't care. I want to talk about the bigger picture. I'm not one of those people who buys into the idea that partisanship is destroying our nation. Our system of government is built on people with strongly opposing ideas coming together in a reasonable fashion to form a synthesis of opposing positions. This results in what Lincoln so wisely heralded as a more perfect union. The solution to our problem is not to get everybody to like French vanilla. It's not giving up our strongly held beliefs and embracing the great savior of bipartisanship. Our problem is not partisanship. Our problem is the disdain and the contempt with which we hold those with differing viewpoints. If someone disagrees with us, we label them or we get labeled as stupid, as idiots, as fools, as jerk, jerks, as knuckle-dragging, mouth-breathing Neanderthals, or much worse, as racists, as bigots, and as phobics. Our problem is not partisanship. Our problem is that we've forgotten how to be polite. We've just forgotten how to be kind to other people. We are crass, we're rude, we're mean. And most of all, as believers, when we're like this, we are not sharing the mind of Christ. And that's our high calling. We're supposed to share the mind of Christ. Folks, it's time to stop hating our neighbor. How else can I say this? Being a bully is not being like Christ. The two do not go together. If this is where you need some help, I want you to go camp in, second, uh, in Philippians chapter 2 for a while. 
It starts out, Paul gives a bunch of questions, just kind of say, hey, are you there? Are you with me? He says, if there's any encouragement from belonging to Christ, any comfort in his love, any fellowship together in the Spirit, are your hearts tender and compassionate that make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving each other, and working together with one mind and purpose? Now we get to the guts of it. He says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourself. Now just think of the posture of that. If I'm thinking of someone else as better than me, I'm looking up at them. If I'm looking at somebody with contempt, I'm looking down at them. And the Bible right here in Philippians is saying we should look up at everybody. We should look up. We should be looking up. We should have that kind of respect. He says, don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You could take almost any one line from those verses and just work it for a week. Just work it. Just allow it to sink into your soul. Hear me one more time. I'm not saying to sell out on the truth for the sake of peace. I'm saying that we can disagree and hold true to the mind of Christ. That's what it means to be truly Christ-like. This leads to our last quit, and that's I quit hating God. How do we hate God? We hate ourselves through self-loathing. We hate others through contempt. We hate God when we decide to play God instead of letting God be God. When we decide we can actually do a better job than God is. It comes in form of these words. If I were God. And maybe you've never said it out loud, but you've thought it. You've thought it. It's stated with the implication that if I were God, this world wouldn't be in the mess it's in. If I were God, I'd get it right, as opposed to the current ruler of the universe. I had a great conversation with a person this past week. His friend asked me, uh, what is one of the toughest questions we bring before God? And I won't get into the specifics of the conversation, but the basic idea was a straight or a restatement of the classic problem of evil. If God is good and God is all-powerful, Why does he allow evil to continue to happen? I mean, really heinous evil, like like child molestation and cruelty beyond unthinkable proportions. Why doesn't he just stop it? Now, there are two basic ways that we can answer that question. The first is uh, theoretical and theological in nature. It's the classroom answer where we dig into the works of Augustine and Aristotle and Aquinas. The classroom answer where, we, where the struggle is real, but the struggle is safe. It's an academic struggle. It's looking at life under a microscope in a sterile lab. We just kind of look at it theoretically. We could grapple with issues of free will and theodicy. Some might even argue uh, uh, theoretically uh, an atheistic approach. Well, if there is no God, there is no problem of evil, right? So we've eliminated the problem. We could even go pop culture. We could go all Kelly Clarkson, all right? Uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Hey, why, why, does evil work? why is evil in the world? Because we need that to press up against in order to grow. Problem is, Kelly, it might kill you. Now what? Now what do you do? I like Kelly. She was a guest judge recently on Idol. She should have been on like the last several seasons. She was a hoot. Um, late in the program that night, they had her sing a new song that she's written called Peace by Peace, comparing the dad who abandoned her as a child to her very faithful husband who shows up day after day and proves that a man does not have to be a total disappointment. She wrote these words, Peace by Peace, he restored my faith that a man can be kind and a father could stay. 
In a real way, her new song says, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. It grows you up. That song moves the question out of the classroom approach to another way to answer the question. The other answer is a real-life question. It's a faith answer. The faith answer embraces these three simple words. I don't know. Are you okay with saying, I don't know? Boy, a lot of us struggle with those words. We, we got, we've got to have it all figured out. How in the world can I say to someone who asks the question about the problem of evil, I've got some ideas, but truly, I don't know. I wish God would use all the power at his disposal to stop evil. I wish his love would wipe out hate today, but he doesn't, and I don't totally get it. You know, we might say, if I were God, I'd do it totally differently. I mean, by my desk, I'd have a bag of lightning bolts. And every time some kid got abused, they'd go whipping out of the sky. And you'd just see a dark spot, and boom, they're gone. Or, or people would just spontaneously combust. Forget their little purple head blowing off. The whole thing, boom, they'd just be gone. And you'd know that they did wrong in a heinous act of violence. You, you can keep playing if I were God. Or you can choose to love him and let God be God. This leads to the faith answer. The faith answer says, I don't know all the answers, but I know you, God. I trust you. And I choose to love you, even though I don't know all the answers. Now, this may sound harsh, so so hear me before you judge, okay? The hate answer says, I will love you when I get all my questions answered. When I have it all figured out, when I figure you out, God, then I will love you. The love answer says, I trust you and really don't need to know. Not because of ignorance, but because I choose you. I choose to love you. The love answer echoes the words of Job in Job 13. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Even if he chooses to kill me. I trust him. I don't have all the answers. You're the only answer I need. I trust you. I love you. Now let me clarify again. I'm not saying that asking questions is hating God. Not at all. Questions are the first step in a life of faith. We need to ask questions. But we hate God when we hold him in reserve. We do not show him love when we come to him on our terms, when we lay out our demands, our conditions, when we decide what we need to hear first, of what we need to see first, before we will choose to trust him. Loving God means trusting God. Even if you kill me, my hope is in you. Are you ready to quit hating today? Quit hating yourself. Show yourself some love by putting a ban on self-loathing. Embrace the truth of Ephesians 2.10. You are God's artistry. You are a renewed in Christ. You are here for a purpose, and you are here on purpose. You're not an accident. You're not a mistake. Are you ready to quit hating? Quit hating others. Put away the contempt. Stop channeling your inner bully and cheering for the bullies of this world Take on the mind of Christ. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Are you ready to quit hating? Quit hating God. 
Stop playing if I were God. Let God be God. Stop demanding all the answers before you choose to trust him. Show your love by embracing him as the only answer you really need. Even if you kill me, my hope is in you. I quit hating. And for the sake of your life, I hope you do too. I hope we all do. Father God in heaven, this, this spirit of hate is burned so deeply into our, into our spirits, into our hearts, into the way we live. We don't even realize it sometimes. We don't realize the contempt we have for either other people, the loathing we have for ourselves, or the ways in which we push you away and decide we're God, we can do it better. Today, Lord, I pray that as we have the chance to reflect on these truths in the coming week, you will expose by your Holy Spirit the areas that we are coddling hatred and that we would trade them in for love, that we would come to a place of saying, I quit, I quit, hating be- I, I quit being a hateful person. I choose love, I choose God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So for our, our Lenten thought this morning, uh, we're gonna be talking from, again, this booklet that we've been using And this week, week three happens to be labeled repentance, cleaning our messy house. A piece of what God wants us to be doing all the time, and we have an opportunity during this season to really zero in on it, is to repent, to repent of the sin, to turn from our wicked ways, to say, I'm not going to live there anymore. To get started with this, we're going to read a passage from the book of Luke, chapter 13, in which Jesus tells a parable a parable that makes clear to us that God is a God of second chances and third and fifth and 17th and so on. It says, Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it but didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to you for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up my soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and I'll fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine, great. If not, then cut it down. In her book, Amazing Grace, Kathleen Norris tells the story of working as an artist in residence at a parochial school teaching children how to write poetry using the Psalms as a model. One little boy wrote a poem entitled, The Monster Who Was Sorry. He began by admitting that he hates it when his father yells at him. His response in the poem is to throw his sister down the stairs, then wreck his room, and finally, to just wreck the whole town. The poem concludes, Then I sit in my messy house, and I say to myself, I shouldn't have done all that. My messy house says it all. Norris observes, with more honesty than most adults could have mustered, the boy made a metaphor for himself that admitted the depth of his rage and gave him a way out. He was well on his way toward repentance, not a monster after all, but only human. If the house is messy, why not clean it up? Why not make it into a place where God might wish to dwell? During Lent, we're called to enter into more intentionally into prayer self-examination, and repentance for the purpose of restoration and renewal. 
We're willing to sit in our messy house and get, a, and get a little more honest about the fact that we are actually in disarray. To the best of our ability, we acknowledge what got us into the mess we are in. We feel remorse and we say, I wish I hadn't done that. This is the truth in the inward being. Many of us have had a hard time admitting that our house is messy. Like the money changers Jesus confronted in the temple in John 2, we have a lot riding on the way in which we've got things set up in our inner world. On some level, the sins and negative patterns work for us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be so attached to them. We need Jesus to come into the temple of our body and our life and say, take these things out of here. They don't belong in a house of prayer. The first step in the practice of repentance is self-examination. Reviewing our lives in God's presence, asking him to bring to our awareness those places where we are not like Christ and where we are caught in the grip of sin and other negative patterns. Perhaps there is a vague sense that something is not right, like the subtle resistance to doing something loving for another person. Or it could be something more clear-cut, such as an angry outburst. Whatever it is, we're willing to see without rationalizing and listen without defending. This is called awakening. As painful as it is to be exposed at this level, awakening is evidence of God's grace. God is at work leading us out of the bondage of sin and into the freedom from sin that is, in, that is ours in Christ and Christ alone. We can then invite Jesus in to help us understand what's going on inside of us that caused the bad behavior so that he can root the problem out at its source. Once the temple is swept clean, it can become a place of prayer once more. So as we've talked about hate this morning, maybe you find yourself like the little boy saying, then I sit in my messy house and say to myself, I shouldn't have done that. The couple of moments of silence that we're going to spend together gives us a chance to connect with God in a time of prayer, in a time to repent. A repentance that begins now, and and we're probably just going to keep thinking about it throughout the week. What are the areas in which we truly need to quit hating? So, imagine yourself in your messy house sitting on the floor and saying, God, I wish I hadn't done that. This one, take it. I give it up to you. We'll sit in silence for a couple of, couple of minutes, and I, I just want to say one thing. It is cold and flu season. Uh, if you have to cough, sneeze, or sniffle, it's okay. I know some of you, you've been like holding your breath for two minutes. That's a quick way to die. So go ahead, and the silence is for spiritual benefit, not to take you to heaven really fast. So... Uh, <laughs> Cough, sniffle, do what you got to do, but just be quiet in the presence of God, okay? I'm going to share with you a portion of a beautiful prayer. As you hear the words, allow your spirit to be joined with it as we lift it up to God. O God of such truth as sweeps away all lies, of such grace as shrivels all excuses, come now to find us where we have lost ourselves in a shuffle of disguises and in the rattle of empty words. We have been careless of our days, our loves, our gifts, our chances. Our prayer is to change, O God, not out of despair of self, but for love of you, and for the selves we long to become before we simply waste away. Let your mercy move in us and through us now.
Amen. We have a few things to share with you. It's, it's kind of funny. You talk about those one-liners. I just got a chance to use Jason's. It worked out really well. So we're having this beautiful, quiet moment of communion. Turn your eyes upon Jesus is playing. And Brian's mic pack falls off and smashes to the ground. And I was able to turn and say, don't do stupid. <laughs> it worked. It worked. I, I, you're going to be hearing that one a lot, I have a feeling. Loving that. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. So um, you had uh, an event coming up. Yeah, so on March 13th, it's two Sundays from now, uh, we're going to be taking Revive to Bloomington. So we will not meet here that night. Uh, it's an event that where we're going to do some team building, and it's actually in a really fun, creative way. We're going to escape in Bloomington, and it's just going to be a really cool thing. Uh, but it's $35, and we still have spots available. So if you're a high school student and you want to go on this trip, I need your registrations now so we can get you uh, on the website, get your waiver signed and all that, because, uh, we, again, we need to make sure that um, we have everybody signed up. They've also agreed that if we fill all of our spots, they'll actually open up an, a third room for us. So, again, I, I would really love to let them know in advance if we need that third room so that they can be properly staffed and all that, because that would be a real um, gift on their part in, in doing that for us. So Cool. Uh, the folder this morning talks about Green Lake. You're going to be headed back there. Talk a little bit to someone who's never heard of the place before. What's it all about? Well, if you've never heard of Wisconsin, good for you. Um, <laughs> but Green Lake, uh, there's not, not a lot good happens. No, I'm kidding. Uh, Green Lake is out. It, there's a Green Lake, uh, Christian Conference Center up in Green Lake, Wisconsin, and it's a beautiful place. It's huge. It's just absolutely, there's so much land there. Um, and being a Christian Conference Center as it is, They rely heavily on volunteer work and people who basically work for uh, refried beans. So what we do is we bring both of our our groups, our junior hires and our high schoolers up for one week to help out. Because ultimately, both Shelly and myself have worked up there. Uh, A friend of the church is the president of the conference center, and we all know that Ultimately, it's, it's hands, the, as many hands as we can get on deck for even just a short four or five days uh, can make a, a world of a difference in helping them keep up with taking care of the grounds. So they, it's everything from painting to brush clearing to weed pulling to a lot of nasty stuff, uh, especially when you're out in the middle of, uh, of the summer. But mm-hmm. we do get to have some fun, and we also do have some biblical teach time. So it's, it's a retreat for, for both of our groups. We break down into small groups and have just prank wars and all kinds of the, the, their typical camp stuff. So that will be happening from June 12th to 17th. I've had a lot of parents ask me about registration and all that. It will be coming the first week of March because we had been receiving registrations way too early in the past, and now we just we're saying uh, the first week of March. So, junior hires, you will receive it on Wednesday. High schoolers, the following, and we'll get going with that trip. Yeah, again. it's here. It's, March I, is here. You know the good news about that? You survived winter. <laughs> I know it wasn't much of one to survive, but we survived. We're in Chicago, it, it goes till June, great. so this don't say great. that yet. I know, I know, but still. Yeah, so as you leave today, you'll notice that the wind is blowing about 50 miles an hour. No big deal. You'll get home faster. And it's a nice warm afternoon. Make sure you go out and enjoy it. Why don't you stand up with me on your way out the door? I always want to remind you that 
if you have a burden on your heart or something that you've listened to this morning that you just need to pray with somebody, a person that stands in the back corner that's willing to spend time praying with you. Also, as you're leaving the room, on either side of the doors, there are tables there. There are copies of uh, a Bible that we use around here. It's just a plain American English Bible. And we'd encourage you, if you don't have one, to go ahead and take one and, and put it to good use. Learn what God has to say by spending time reading His Word. Let's pray together. Now, God, as we go into this week, uh, it will be easy to take what we've learned and apply it to everybody else that we see. There are a lot of haters out there. But God, this isn't about the haters out there. This is about the hater in me. And so I pray that you will reveal again and again and again the ways in which we are not living consistently with the mind of Christ and that you will help us in that moment to repent of it and turn our direction to quit, to quit hating, to be people who truly show what it means not only to be a follower of Jesus, but what it means to look like Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. You enjoy your week. We'll see you.